This morning I'm starting a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Very easy to find, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And we're reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 to 11 this morning. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all his toil, at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Amen. We know God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. So we're beginning a series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I've entitled The Diary of a Desperate Man. And this morning I simply want to introduce the book, and we want to do that by looking at the first 11 verses. Someone has called Ecclesiastes a book whose time has come. It was written a very long time ago, yet it has a remarkably contemporary ring to it. It could have been written yesterday morning, or even this morning. It's a buying-up-to-date book. It belongs to that part of the Bible that we uh, call wisdom literature. Uh, that means it's a thinking book. You've got to apply your mind. It's a book that deals with the riddle of life. What do we make of life? For most people, you get up in the morning, you have your breakfast, you uh, go to work, you come home, you have your tea, you watch the television, or you perhaps go online, uh, you go to bed, you get up, you have your breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you watch the television, and you go to bed. You might vary it a little bit. You might, instead of uh, watching some program, watch Netflix, or you might even go to the cinema, you might pop out for the, a coffee, you might go to the gym but life is very routine. For most people, there is this routine. And life can be very boring. Life is samey for many people. That's what Solomon is describing here in these, these opening verses. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Uh, the rain falls on the earth, verse 7. It flows into rivers uh, which flow into the stream, it's uh, 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 into the sea, it's evaporated, and then that process uh, begins all over again. Verse 7, 
all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. Now, it might be a reference to the Dead Sea, uh, the lowest point on the earth. And as you know, the River Jordan flows into the Dead Sea, but there's no stream flowing out of the Dead Sea. And yet the Dead Sea is never full. There's an endless cycle to life. Life's like that. It's like living on a treadmill. It's like a hamster on a wheel. You're, you're putting uh, and expending a lot of energy, but you're getting nowhere. And what is true of us individually is true of us as a society as well. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So the baby boomer generation, 1941 to 1964, it grieves me that I'm part of that, just about baby generation. It gave way to generation X, 65 to 80, which give way to generation Y, 81 to 95, the millennials, then generation Z or Z, Gen Z, as the Americans say. We've finished the alphabet. What do we do? We've finished the Latin alphabet. We start all over with the Greek alphabet, and now we're coming into generation alpha, 2011 to 2025. It's, it's routine. And look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And so when uh, I was growing up as a teenager, the great threat was the Cold War, and then uh, um, Russia uh, defrosted, entered into uh, relationships with the West, but now with Ukraine, we're back to square one. That's life. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is God's answer to the question, is there any purpose? Is there any reason to life? What's the point of it all? Why am I here? Why am, do I exist on this planet? And it's, it's not a slick and easy answer. It's not an instantaneous answer. Solomon wants us to sit down, apply our minds, and think it through. Now, in introducing the, the book this morning, I want you to notice uh, four things. The person behind the book, the motto of the book, the reason for the book, and then the key to understanding the book. So, first of all, the person behind the book. Uh, well, who wrote the book? Well, we're introduced to him in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher. Now, that uh, word preacher is the Hebrew word koheleth. Uh, and uh, koheleth means gathering or assembly. It's primarily used in Scripture of an assembly of the people of God gathered for the worship of God, koheleth. And if you remember back to our studies uh, on the church, you will know that the Greek word for, for assembly is ecclesia, and that's where the book, uh, 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 the title of the book, Ecclesiastes, uh, comes from. It's the Latin version or the Greek version of this word preacher, Kohelet. And it, it's referring to a person who is a, addressing God's people. It's translated uh, as preacher in the ESV, as teacher in the NIV. 
Well, who was this preacher? Who was this man who spoke then to the assembly, to the gathered people of God? Now, traditionally, that has always been considered to be uh, um, Solomon. And then at the end of the 19th century, uh, it became very fashionable to question Solomon's authorship of this book because he's not mentioned uh, in the book directly. Uh, and one of the reasons that's questioned is because the uh, Hebrew uh, of Ecclesiastes is very different from the, the Hebrew of Judges and uh, Joshua, the Hebrew that would have been there during Solomon's time. It's a bit like uh, finding a new play, uh, Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare, part two, and uh, then you're reading it and you, you, you hear or you read uh, Shylock saying, that's neat or that's cool. Well, you would know immediately that that didn't ring true, that that wasn't actually uh, uh, the words that Shakespeare would have penned because that's contemporary language going back uh, into uh, uh, ancient writings. And so people then question the the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. But more recently, there has been a shift back to Solomon uh, and identifying him as uh, the author in modern uh, scholarship. And they say, the, the, these new scholars say, uh, you've got to understand that it's a different kind of literature. It, it's not a historical book like Joshua and Judges. It's a philosophical book. It's a book that's dealing with completely different issues, and that explains the different uh, language. Now, it is true that Solomon is never mentioned by name, but if you were a detective and you were trying to solve the mystery, Solomon would indeed be a great candidate. He would be under suspicion. The words, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. That sounds like Solomon. Uh, look at verse 12, which I think is even more convincing. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, you remember David was the first king who reigned from Jerusalem. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divided into two, to Israel in the north and to Judah in the south. So there, was only, there were only two kings who reigned from Jerusalem over all of Israel. And that uh, uh, seems to be con confirmed that Solomon was the author uh, of the book. If you go down to verse 9 of chapter 2, we're told, So I became great and surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. And the greatness of Solomon, the glory of his reign, was proverbial. He was blessed with great wisdom. He categorized animals and plants according to 1 Kings 5. He was a man of, of great uh, intellect and great wisdom, and his reign knew great glory. That sounds like Solomon. We're told in the last chapter, in chapter 12 and verse 9, that the author of this book also wrote many proverbs. And we know from 1 Kings that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Perhaps he comes closest to identifying himself in chapter 7 
and verse 27. Just look that up with me. Chapter 7 and verse uh, 27. Behold, this is what I find, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find this scheme of things which my soul has uh, sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. And that sounds very sexist, doesn't it? He says, as the NIV says, um, I, I could find one man upright in a thousand, but in a thousand women I couldn't find one upright woman. Well, that sounds sexist, misogynist, and it would be if Solomon wasn't writing out of his own experience. He, he, he is not generalizing or dogmatizing in making these remarks about women, but he's writing out of his own uh, personal experience. And although we find it incredible to, to take in, Solomon had a thousand women a thousand concubines, a thousand mistresses. So he's referring to his experience, and what he is saying, he says, out of all those around me, uh, I, I could only find one man in a thousand, and in my harem I could only, uh, well, there were no, there was no woman that I could trust. Well, that sounds like Solomon, because Solomon was the playboy of the ancient world. The, the Bible tells us he ruined his life on women and horses. I suppose the equivalent would be on women and fast cars, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The story of Solomon is a sad story. He started so, with so many advantages. He had a godly father, and he was so gifted by God, such, so much promise in his early life, and then, to use a modern expression, he blew it all. And some people have suggested that what we have here in Ecclesiastes is Solomon's repentance in his old age. Uh, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's equivalent of David's Psalm 51, where he confesses his sin. That as an old man, he's looking back on a wasted life and he expresses his regrets and declares his repentance. Solomon seems to have been the man that wrote the book, and he wants us, through the pages of his diary, to understand the big issues of life and how dangerous it is to live life without reference to God. One of the wisest and wealthiest men who ever lived but at the same time, one of the most reckless uh, and, and wasted lives that we would ever read about. And what we're going to do in our studies is to look at life through the eyes of Solomon. As Derek Kidner says, we're going to put on the mantle of Solomon, and we're going to uh, consider life, the man behind the book. The second thing I want you to notice is the motto in the book. You see it there? Uh, in, in verse 2 of chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the, the motto that keeps cropping up again and again on the pages of this book. The word vanity is used 80 times 
vanity of vanities some 30 times. Now, it's not vanity in the sense that we use that word meaning proud or conceited. Vanity in the sense of meaning uh, uh, empty or without substance. The Hebrew word is the word hebo, which refers to a, a puff of breath, a vapor. It's a word that's used of something that is passing, that is insubstantial, that is transitory, uh, something that's with, without any kind of lasting, lasting substance. I don't think the NIV translating it meaningless, meaningless has just captured the, the word completely. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it as smoke, nothing but smoke. Everything is smoke. One commentator translates it, utterly futile, utterly futile. The whole thing is futile. Now, isn't life like that for many people? One contemporary Russian uh, author describes life as a country with no signposts because there is nowhere to go. Is that what life is like for you? Modern existential philosophy tells us that we've got to live for the moment because the moment is all that we have. But you don't have to be an existentialist philosopher to live like that. You remember uh, the Philemon, uh, Alfie uh, made uh, in uh, 1966, starring Michael Caine, remade uh, in uh, 2004 with Jude Law. Cilla Black sings the opening song uh, of those two films, and uh, she asked the question, what's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about? Is it just for the moment we live? That there's no purpose, there's no meaning to life, so we live for the moment because the moment is all that we have. have. That's what the philosophers are uh, telling us today. That's what uh, modern music is telling us today. That's what uh, entertainers are telling us today, that it's just for the moment that we live. But Solomon says, if you leave God out of your thinking, you are in trouble. If you leave God out, life doesn't make sense. It hasn't any meaning or purpose. It's vanity. It's futile. It's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. People uh, are saying that uh, through art, through music, uh, through culture today. It's, it's empty. And that's Solomon's motto. And he keeps coming back to it relentlessly with devastating effect time and time again through the pages of this book because he wants us to face up to, to life without God and all that it means. Philip Rankin says, this is what life is like when we... Uh, view it merely from a human perspective when we limit our gaze to the solar system without ever lifting our eyes to see the beauty and glory of God in heaven. But our difficulty is, you see, we don't, don't want to think. We want to bury our heads in the sand. We just get on with that routine and live life in that routine. But Solomon won't let us do that. He pushes us and he pushes us to the extremity of our thinking. He wants to take us to the logical conclusion of what it means to leave God out of your life. If you leave God out of your 
life, if you leave God out of the picture, what is life like, says Solomon? It's pointless. It's futile. It's meaningless. I know, he says, because I've done it. I've been there, and I've got the t-shirt. That's the inevitable consequence of leaving God out of your thinking. The person behind the book, the motto of the book, the uh, the reason for the book is, is Solomon trying to depress us when he describes life as vanity of vanities. Why, why is he saying this relentlessly? That's his motto, but why is he saying vanity of vanities? Why does he do this? Well, there's a, a very interesting verse in, in Romans uh, chapter 14 uh, and verse uh, 15 and verse 4. Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You see what Paul is saying? Whatever was written, all the Old Testament Scriptures were written for our instruction that we might have hope that far from being a depressing book, Ecclesiastes is intended to give us hope. C.S. Lewis believed that Ecclesiastes shouldn't be in the Bible. He said it's a totally hopeless book, a a futile book. It had nothing uh, to say that was worthy of God. Well, according to Paul, he was wrong because whatever was written before was written to give us hope. Why is this book written? Why is this book in our Bible? It's to give us hope. It it is intended to, to inspire hope, to give meaning and purpose to life. Sometimes we say you've got to be cruel to be kind. Well, that's what Solomon's doing with with a brutal honesty and to devastating effect, he explores the secular view of life and he forces us to face up to that life and then pulls the rug out from under our feet that we might uh, fall upon God. So the answer is uh, cumulative. And by the time you reach uh, chapter 12 and verse 13, he says, This is the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In the Hebrew, the word duty isn't actually there. This is man, to fear God and keep His commandments. This is why uh, we were made. This is why we were created, to to reverence God, to worship God, to glorify God, to, to fear God, and to live a life that is pleasing uh, to Him. So then what seems at first to be a book of despair is in fact a book that has a, a strong and powerful message of hope. The person behind the book the motto of the book, the reason for the book, and the key to understanding the book. Uh, look at verse, verse 3. Um, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
It, it is a difficult book, and it's a, it's a difficult If you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes you're scratching your head and you're asking yourself, what on earth is Solomon saying? One of the ancient rabbis in Israel said, Oh, Solomon, where is your wisdom? You not only contradict your father David, but you even contradict your own words. And at times it does seem like that. That, that Solomon is actually contradicting something that he has just said. Well, the key to understanding the book is that phrase, under the sun. Now, if you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, and every time you see that phrase, under the sun, just underline it, and then go through the book, and every time God is mentioned, circle that. Then you'll see at a glance what were and what the message of hope is. Because Solomon is looking at life from two angles. He's, he's looking at life under the sun, the secular view of life. But every now and then he brings God in. And what a difference that makes. Let me, let me illustrate that for a, a moment. So the Jehovah's Witnesses call at your door and they say, don't you believe in the doctrine of soul sleep? That, that when you die, there's nothing more to come. And uh, that's, that's the end of it. Do you know, Ecclesiastes teaches that. And they turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 uh, and, and verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So the Jehovah's Witness says, you're dead, you're dead, that's it. There's no hope, there's nothing more. But that's from life under the sun. And then you come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and, and verse um, uh, 6. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to God to give it. You see, now, if you, if you were just reading Ecclesiastes, you'd say, oh, there, there's a contradiction there. Well, it's not a contradiction. It's life under the sun. Leave God out of it, people say. Right? Well, I'm going to leave God out of it. This is what life is like without God. It's, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's without substance. It's, it's like a, a, a patch of a fog or a puff of steam from the the, the kettle, you, you grab onto it, you hold it, and, uh, and it's gone. You open the window and it disappears. Um, steam or, or, or mist is the nearest thing to nothingness that we have. And if you live your life like that, you're going to be left empty and there's going to be no substance to your life. Life under the sun. Derek Kidner says, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment, all is vanity, is the only honest one. We face 
uh, an appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. But then he says, Ecclesiastes opens the door of life above the sun. Life lived in the presence of God. Let me ask you then, where do you live your life? Do you live life under the sun, which is meaningless and futile and hopeless? Or do you live your life above the sun in the presence of God? Some scholars point out that the, the phrase vanity of vanities is actually a parody of that other phrase that appears in Scripture, holy of holies. Now, you know the holy of holies in the Old Testament was that, um, that cube. It was perfectly square. It was a perfect cube where that, that, that held the Ark of the Covenant where God was said to dwell. And you either live your life under the sun, which is vanity of vanities, or you live your life in the holy of holies, in, in, the, uh, in the presence of God. That life was intended to be lived in the presence of God. Those two great bookends of, of, of our history at the beginning, uh, that uh, in the Garden of Eden, that God was there, and God, Adam and Eve, lived in the presence of God, and God came and uh, walked with them in the cool of the day. They were bathing in the glory and the presence of God. And then that other bookend in Revelation where John sees the, the, uh, the city um, coming down out of heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for the, the bridegroom. And, and it, it's, incidentally, it's a perfect cube. That, that, that new city comes as a perfect cube. There's only a one other perfect cubits in the Bible. It's the Holy of Holies. And this city comes down and it descends. And, and John tells us there was no temple there. Well, why was there no temple? Because it was all temple. Because heaven is living in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Now, where do you live your life? Are you living for the the here and now. You remember in James, James chapter 4, he writes to professing Christians who are saying, we'll go to this city and we'll make some money and we'll go to that city and we'll make some more money and, uh, uh, and we'll jet set somewhere else around the world uh, and uh, we'll live uh, our, our lives just as we like without consulting the will of God. And James says, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while empty meaningless, vanity. It's, a, it's like a vapor that appears for a little while and then disappears. Puff of steam from the kettle. And then we stand before God and the books are opened and the account of our lives are read and it's all totaled up and God says, it's meaningless. It's worthless. It's empty. I just want to say to you, if you're, if you're living your life under the sun, that's the road to dissatisfaction and depression. You'll never make sense of life because what you try to attain, you will never have. 
Um, All things are full of weariness. A man, verse 8, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You'll, You'll never be satisfied. But if you live your life in the presence of God, if you live your life not under the sun, but above the sun in, in, in respect to God, that's where fulfillment comes. That's where peace comes. That's where you find meaning and purpose uh, in your life. And that's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. The person behind the book, Solomon. The motto of the book, vanity of vanities. The reason for the book, he's, he's forcing us to face up to the futility of life when life is lived under the sun. And the key to understanding the book, you need to see that Ecclesiastes is written from two perspectives. And when you look at life under the sun, it's empty and worthless. But when you look at life uh, under God, that's where the meaning and purpose comes. Amen.